The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established justice, equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Psalm 99, most likely written by David, gives us a view into something special. It gives us a view into God ruling over everything. Every detail, every cosmos, every star, every dust, every atom in your body, absolutely everything is under Yahweh. If you have your Bible this morning, I would implore you to open it to Psalm 99 so that you are able to see it. The theologian Joel Beakley rightly says, the word of God reveals the glory of God for the worship of God. The word of God reveals the glory of God for the worship of God. And my desire and my heartbeat for you all this morning is that as we see and look at Psalm 99, the very word of God, that you would see the glory of God in a way that maybe you've never seen before. And as a result of that, your hearts would be drawn to worship, that you would be drawn up into the throne room of God and worship him afresh. Psalm 99 finds itself nestled in between Psalm 93 and Psalm 100. Eight psalms dealing with the enthronement of God. Yahweh is king. There is no other king. And the main point of Psalm 99, I believe, is what our author is getting at, is our Lord is holy and worthy of worship because he is great, just, and faithful. Our Lord is holy and worthy of worship because he is great, he is just, and he is faithful. In the first three verses, we're going to see God being great. 
In verses 4 and 5, we're going to see God being just. And in the last four verses, we're going to see God being faithful. And these are not abstract realities of God. No, no, no. God is great to you. God is just to you. And God is faithful to you. He is the great God who oversees everything. And so let us start in verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Psalm chapter 8 verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm chapter 8 is referring back to Genesis chapter 1, where we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God's rulership was not won as a result of a cosmic battle between other deities. God's rulership was not won by casting of lots. No, God established everything. His rulership and his reign is determined by him being creator. Again, not one thing in your life goes unplanned by God himself. He rules over all, including all the details in your life. And what is the people's response? To tremble. To tremble. They know God reigns as they come to the Temple Mount. They know their God. Their God has saved them. The book of Exodus details God saving them. He has saved them from oppression. He has liberated them multiple times. The people's Tremble. The response of humanity to God's rule, reign, and holiness is always reverent fear. Always. Reverent fear of the God who created. Reverent fear of the God who saved. Why? Because they know he saved them. He is their Savior. We also see this in the book of Revelation. John is caught up in a vision and he turns around and he sees Jesus. And what is John's response? To fall over as though dead. Encountering the Almighty God leads you to reverent fear, which produces God-centered worship. And where does the psalm say he sits? enthroned upon the cherubim. This brings us back to Exodus 25. Moses is getting instructions how to build the tabernacle. And within the tabernacle, there's the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. It is pure gold. And on the foot and on the head are two cherubim. And these, this place, this mercy seat represented one thing, where God's wrath was appeased for sin. Once a year, the high priest would go in and sprinkle seven times the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, and God's wrath for sin against the nation would be appeased. They would be atoned for. Hebrews chapter 9 walks us through some of the tabernacle. 
walks us through some of the furniture in the tabernacle. And it says something. Those things were symbolic for the age to come. The tabernacle, the furniture in the tabernacle, they were symbolic for the coming of Christ. In John chapter 20, Mary comes to the tomb. The stone has been rolled away. Mary looks in. There's no Jesus. There's an empty slab. Jesus was here. Now he's gone. But what does Mary see when she looks in? Two angels. One sitting at the head and one sitting at the foot. Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the one who atones for sin. Jesus is that one. He is the one where God is enthroned. It is Jesus. Romans chapter 3 talks about this. We have all sinned. All of us. But Jesus is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice where God's wrath was appeased where we can be made into a relationship with God. Jesus is the mercy seat. And our author here is giving us a metaphor of where God reigns. He reigns above the place where he makes atonement. And what is the response of the earth? To quake. The earth quakes under the presence of God himself. Nothing can stand before God. It is an overwhelming sight. It is an overwhelming feeling. And the earth being shake and the earth quaking is the response of humans once again. All of their best laid out plans come to ruin. He is the one that unsettles the ambitious plans of humanity because he is the sovereign one. He is the one that rules over all. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Not some of the peoples. All of them. And our psalmist here provides hope for everyone. It is not just the Jews that he rules over, but all. Those who are not ethnic Jews will have the opportunity to have him be their king. Not simply the Jews, but all. There is hope for those who are not of Jewish descent. And it is in the Messiah. And the Lord is great in Zion. In the Old Testament, Zion was a city that David conquers. It eventually becomes the Temple Mount. It's brought into Jerusalem, and then lastly, it's referred to as the people of Israel as a whole. Zion itself replaces Mount Sinai. Zion is the place where the Lord dwells with his people and where he desires to dwell with his people. But in the New Testament, something radical happens. Zion is mentioned seven times in the New Testament, Five of those times, it's specifically calling the Jews to recognize Jesus as Messiah. Your deliverer is arrived. He has come. He is the one who has saved you. But then it's mentioned two other times. 
both times referring the new Jerusalem. In the New Testament, Zion is not a geographical location. Zion is wrapped up radically into the person of Jesus Christ. Worship is centered on Jesus, not centered on Jerusalem. It is centered in the person who redeemed people from sin, who have saved them, who have liberated them, and who have delivered them. In Hebrews 12, verse 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion. And the author is making the point, upon salvation, you're already there. You're already in Mount Zion. One day you will experience the fullness of it, but you've already come in the gates. It's as Martin Luther said when he was reading the book of Romans upon a salvation, it is though the gates of paradise opened up and I stepped in. That is what happens to us upon salvation. We step into Mount Zion, dwelling with the Lord who has saved us. And here the author gives us the response. Let the peoples praise your great and awesome name. A call of worship is made. An attribute of God is given. A call of worship is then initiated. But what is worship? Worship is the reverent response to God's saving works and praising the very character of God himself. And so this morning as we were singing, was that your heart? Were you wrapped up into God himself, worshiping him because he is great and awesome? Or were the distractions creeping in? The distractions of plans for later today, the distractions of not tipping over your Starbucks coffee cup, the distractions of whatever those distractions are, were those creeping into your mind, robbing you of worshiping the great and awesome God that we have? And then he breaks out into song. Holy is he. God is holy. And as you follow this psalm, you're going to see this is mentioned three times. It's mentioned here, it's mentioned in verse 5, and it's also mentioned in verse 9. This whole psalm and song is wrapped up into God being holy. He is holy the Holy One. The Lexham Survey of Theology quotes on the holiness of God. The holiness of God speaks to God's existence as completely separate from his creation and at the same time to his pure and utterly incorruptible nature. The God you worship this morning is utterly pure. He is utterly set apart and he is unable to be corrupted in any way, shape, or form. And we see this about God. Going back to the book of Exodus, God desires to dwell with his people. He saves them from Egypt, they walk out into the wilderness, and he deeply desires to be with his people. And so what? They set up the tabernacle. The book of Leviticus does not advance the narrative in any way, shape, or form of the, the journey of Israel to the promised land, but it gives us something special. It gives us something so special that we often miss out on it because we simply read rules and regulations. The book of Leviticus is not simply about rules and regulations. It's about the grace of God. 
It's about how God longed and desired to dwell with his people. But, as the book of Leviticus reveals and also the book of Exodus, God expects his people to come to him in a, in a prescribed way. People do not get to come to God on their own terms. In no way, shape, or form does that get to happen. Which is why we know in the New Testament it's only through one. It's only through Jesus. No amount of works is going to get you there. No amount of coming to church or doing religious things will ever get you to God. It's why the book of Hebrews and the author, he says, really, that now if you're going back to Judaism, that's heresy. The Jewish laws do not get you to God. Only Jesus does. And so he says, don't go back to it. Don't go back to the old covenant. Christ has established the new one. Going back to that will never get you to God. It's only in Jesus. And so here we see the book of Leviticus giving us atonement, showing the Israelites, I desire to dwell with you. I want to. I long to. But there's a way in which it needs to happen. And so in grace, he gives the old covenant. In grace, he gives the law so that he can dwell with them. Our Lord is great, but by and large, he is also graceful and loving. He is holy. We sang the Revelation song this morning. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, there's a sea of glass that surrounds the throne. The sea of glass was there because no sin could come to God's throne. He is entirely separate from sin. He is incorruptible, cannot be corrupted, nor will he ever be corrupted because he is holy. Now we see that our Lord is just. He is our just Lord, and he loves justice. The justice that he doles out is with righteousness. It is good justice, and his might is not wrapped up into any military. It's not wrapped up into an economy. It's not wrapped up into a nation, and it's never wrapped up into a government. It is wrapped up in his justice, and he loves his justice. And we can be thankful for his justice because his moral superiority and his reign is simply unmatched. There is no human ruler that can compare to God in terms of justice. There is no organization that is giving out justice the way that God can give out justice. There is no celestial being in the universe that can even touch the justice that God holds. And sometimes it seems as though God's justice takes a bit too long. In Revelation, the fifth seal is open and the martyrs cry, Lord, how much longer? How much longer until we, you will give us vengeance on our deaths? And his response is not one that they probably wanted to hear. It was, once the last martyr has been killed, my justice will pour out on everyone, pour out upon the enemies of God. I will do it, but when the time has come, Regardless of how that justice may seem to take forever, it doesn't. God is still just on his throne. He is still ruling with justice, and his justice will be given at just 
the right moment. And the king, his justice is perfect. The justice that you imagine in your mind is not the justice of the king. It cannot hold a match to the justice of the king sitting enthroned forever. Why? Because we are finite and he is infinite. His justice reigns supreme. He has established equity and he's executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. His ability to rule is free from the things that hinder us. His ruling and his reigning is free from discrimination. It is free from partiality and it's entirely free of being dishonest. So we can trust the justice of God. He is morally pure in his justice. And for those of us who have kids, I think we can agree to that. Sometimes in our discipline, it's not always as God intends it to be. But God's justice as a loving father is always good. And his justice is perfect. Absolutely every time perfect. And we can look at the world and see situations and go, God, where is your justice? Where is your justice for those who don't have a voice? Where is your justice for those who have nothing? God's still just. His justice is still good. We can trust him in his justice. Why can we trust him? Because Jesus is the perfect reflection of his justice and his righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, we to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you can imagine those sitting there thinking, Run that by me again? I can't be perfect. That's unattainable. It's not able to be done. That's the point. That's exactly the point. You can't do it. You cannot be perfect. You cannot get to God on your own. Which is why we have Jesus. Which is why we have Jesus. Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 1 say, But the words it was counted to him, referring to Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot be perfect, but Jesus' righteousness can be given to us. Jesus' goodness can be given to us. The perfection of Jesus is giving to us as we repent from sin and follow him. We can have that. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have the righteousness of God if we are in Christ. So no, we will not be perfect on our own. But we do have it in Jesus.
And so after giving this attribute of God being just, there's a call for worship once again. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. And this is all wrapped up in a command. Our author here is commanding the congregation, worship God. Worship him at his footstool, which is the temple mount. And so as they're gathered at the temple mount, he's commanding them, worship. Worship our just God. Worship the God who reigns supreme with justice. Worship him. And again, our worship is not location-based. Our worship is based on the person of Jesus. John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well. And as he's having a dialogue with her, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus' response is simple, considering what we know now. His response is, The time is coming when you are not going to worship on this mountain or on that mountain. The time is coming when you worship in spirit and truth. The worship we have and the worship we proclaim is never based on a location. It is centered on the person and works of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. John Calvin states, God cannot otherwise be properly worshipped than when we come to him directly through Jesus Christ. There is no worship apart from Jesus Christ. Absolutely none. Romans 5 verses 8 through 10 state, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Prior to Christ, we are enemies of God. In Christ, we are children. In Christ, we have the righteousness of God. In Christ, we are his. The world is not full of the children of God. Our modern-day philosophy has lied to us point-blankly. Those who are not in Christ cannot directly worship God and are his enemies, is what the Bible says. But in Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we come directly to God for worship. And after giving the command for the congregation to worship, he exclaims once again, Holy is he. This is the second time we see God being holy. And as I said earlier, there's one more time. It draws us back to Isaiah chapter 6, where we see the seraphim in the throne room, and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The holiness of God and the glory of God are intertwined. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He being Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. 
The Lexham Survey of Theology says again on God's glory, the glory of God is the splendor and brilliant beauty that shines through all of the divine attributes, every single one of them, but is especially evident in the crucified and risen Christ. God's glory shines brightest through the crucified and risen Jesus. And what is absolutely is amazing is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Because of Christ, you can behold the glory of God. You get to behold the glory. In the Old Testament, where this is referring to is when Moses would go into the tent of meeting and meet with Yahweh. He would come out and the glory would be so strong that he had to cover his face. The people were terrified of God's glory. But you don't have to be. You do not have to be terrified of the glory of God because of Jesus. You behold the glory of God because of Jesus. And what's amazing is you're being transformed into the glory of God because of Jesus. And so as you become more and more into the person of Christ, as you are being sanctified, as you are being transformed, the glory of God radiates out of you. People should see that. People will see that. Your brothers and sisters that you don't know, you ever have that moment when you meet someone and you go, that's a Christ follower. I know it. Why? Because you're beholding the glory of God in one another. But those that don't know Christ... They don't want to behold the glory of God. That's why Jesus said, I was persecuted, so expect to be persecuted. The glory of God that radiates off of you is an offense to the world. It is an offense because they hate God. Romans chapter 1 says that God's divine attributes have been made known for everyone, and so therefore there is no excuse for anyone. They hate God. And the glory that radiates off of you will be an offense. But the question for us is, are we beholding the glory of God? And are we seeing people notice the glory of God as it radiates off of us? Lastly, we see our Lord is faithful. He is faithful. And it mentions Moses and Aaron, they were some of his priests, and Samuel also. And here we're not looking at a technical term for priest. We're looking at three individuals who interceded on behalf of the congregation to Yahweh himself. Moses served as a mediator during the golden calf incident. Aaron served as a mediator as he offered the atonement sacrifices, and Samuel served as a mediator because they were wrestling with the Philistines, and the people said, go to God on our behalf. And Samuel did, and ultimately they had the victory over them. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel were among his priests. But we also know this about those three men. They were flawed. Moses disobeyed God and was not allowed to enter in the promised land. 
Aaron rebelled against Moses at some point in time as well. We notice these men are finite. They had sin. But they point to someone who does not. Jesus is the great high priest. Hebrews chapter 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Jesus is our great high priest. He is the perfect mediator on our behalf. He is the one who intercedes for us perfectly. And because of his sacrifice, it's not simply Moses, Aaron, or any of the Levites who are now priests. We are now the priesthood of God. Matthew 27, when Jesus dies, the temple is torn in half. At that moment, the temple becomes useless. The temple is no longer valid. It's no longer necessary. People cannot get to God through the temple. The high priest sacrifices mean nothing. It's only through Jesus. And once that was torn, the priesthood goes from a select few to the entire body of Christ. We are the priesthood. You have access to God yourself. You do not need to go to anyone. You can go directly to him because of Jesus' sacrifice. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that we are a royal priesthood. Not some of them, all of them. Every single one of us in Christ are a royal priesthood. And that does not mean we can live however we want and then say to everyone else, well, you're living however you want, so that's fine. No, 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 no. We still are required to live holy lives, but we don't have to go to anyone to get to God. We go directly through him, through Jesus. Psalmist continues, they called to the Lord and he answered them. What grace, what profound love that God answered them. They weren't waiting for anyone. He answers them directly. And what's beautiful about the rest of the Hebrews 4 passage is in verses 15 and 16, we have this great high priest. And it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And the word weaknesses there carries the sense of struggling with sin. We do not have a high priest that does not know what it's like not to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. And every single way that you have been tempted, Jesus has been tempted. So our high priest gets it. He understands what it's like to be tempted. But one, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. But what? Without sin. He did it. He lived the life in perfection, sinless, entirely filling every commandment of the old covenant. So then, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. They had to go through Moses. They had to go through Aaron. They had to go through Samuel. We go through Jesus. And the beautiful thing about all of this is that in our weakness, the throne is open. 
in the moments of temptation, in the moments of about to sin, the throne is open. Jesus has provided the wave to the throne. And you know what the Father wants to give from here? Mercy and grace. The Father wants to give you mercy and grace in times of weakness. He desires to give it to you in moments of about to sin. So run to the faithful Lord. Run to the one who desires to give it to you through Jesus. In the pillar of the cloud, God spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. Though Moses and Aaron were finite, they were also obedient to Yahweh. They kept the testimonies and statute. And then it says this, this beautiful sentence. O Lord our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. We know from Exodus 34, God says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Our God is a forgiving God. But what was the second part? He's an avenger of wrongdoings. God did avenge the wrongdoings that were done. It's why Moses was unable to enter the promised land. He blatantly disobeyed God. And so the Lord is faithful to forgive and the Lord is faithful to enact justice. And what's so good about this is that's what a loving father does. A loving father forgives and a loving father also issues discipline. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 says, for those who are being disciplined, it is good because it means what? You're a true child of God. For those that are not being disciplined, the Bible says you're not a child of God. If the father has not disciplined you, you're not his child. And so in the forgiveness and in the discipline, God is a loving, faithful God to us. And then lastly, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Both of those are commands. He's commanding the congregation at the Temple Mount, worship Yahweh. Worship him alone. For the Lord our God is holy. And in this last stanza, we see the holiness and the graciousness of God wrapped into one. Our God is entire holy. He is entirely set apart, but he is entirely gracious. He's entirely loving. He's faithful to you. In this very moment, he is faithful to you. I want to draw you back up to verse 1 real quick. The Lord reigns. The way that this is written is simply amazing. It's talking about a present reality while also looking at a future reality. The Lord reigns over the earth, but is that evident right now? Sin runs rampant. Evil and corruption mar everyone. This is pointing to something. New creation is the fulfillment of Psalm 99. New creation is the fulfillment of of Psalm 99. And so right now as we live our lives 
and we think about the minutiae and the details and the grind, pull yourselves up to the new creation. Pull ourselves there. Because one day Psalm 99 becomes our reality. One day this becomes our reality, not just by faith, but by sight. Worshiping our God becomes a reality. Revelation chapter 1, it says this and then bleeding into 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By the light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does not do what is detestable or false, for only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. The tree of life. With its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruits each month, the leaves of the tree were like the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Psalm 99 becomes our reality one day, where we see God, where we are with the Lamb, where we worship with them. There's no need for a temple because the temple is Zion. We are with him, the dwelling place of God. And in closing, so what? So what does this actually mean for us? What does this mean on this July 4th weekend? Marvel at the beauty of God's revelation of himself as king. May we be driven to worship as we recognize that the same great, just, and faithful king revealed in Psalm 99 3,000 years ago is the same king who rules over every detail of your life today. And the same king who rules over the new heaven and new earth when Psalm 99 will be experienced in the fullness of reality. Brothers and sisters, the day's coming. We've already come to Mount Zion. We're working our way to the fullness of it. So as we close in song, sing as if you're already there. Worship as if you're already in new creation, as if Psalm 99 is already your reality. And live this week as such. Live with new creation in mind. Don't be bogged down by the, the planet. Don't be bogged down by the cares of the world. You are in exile. Your home is Mount Zion. You're almost there. Persevere and worship as Psalm 99 calls us to worship. Father, you are great, you are just, and you are faithful. You are the good God of holiness. You are the God whose glory radiates out of the throne room and that we can behold it because of Jesus. 
So Lord, I pray now that as we sing, we sing as though Psalm 99 is not something abstract, it's not ethereal, but God, it is a present reality for us. And we pray this in the strong, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.